0: So, as you know, if you've been reading along in the book of Acts, um, you know, up to the point of chapter 15 here, you know that there's been a culture shift, a pretty radical culture shift, Um, a culture shift towards inclusion. In the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, we've seen this radical movement outwards, Uh, where uh, people from all different uh, demographics and stratifications and categories are being reconciled to one another. People who really have no business being friends with each other and being open to one another. We've seen Jewish people from all over the diaspora uh, join with Samaritan people, uh, with Ethiopian eunuchs, (laughs) with murderous enemies. If you think about Paul kind of changing his mind about the church and then the church welcoming Paul. Um, And now we've seen um, Gentiles in general kind of come to see the light of Jesus. And it's important to understand the term Gentile is kind of like an umbrella term for just those outside, like us versus them, you Jews and Gentiles. So it can be kind of a blanket term that can be used for anybody that's sort of not on the inside. Um, And if you recall last week, you might consider that it's not just that these folks um, started to see the light of Jesus. They saw themselves being seen in the light of Jesus as if a bright light shone upon them until they could see the shame narratives, the deep-seated fears and resentments and traumas that kept these people hidden and vigilant. The light of Jesus is illuminating the dark within each of us, holding us in the line of God's sight with endless compassion and extravagant tenderness. And we notice the healing that comes from being truly seen. We notice the light of Christ begin to shine forth from within us, and we begin to truly see one another, to notice each other. We see people beyond our socially constructed categories like gender and race and tax bracket. We see with the eyes of love until old kinship networks are shattered and new kinship bonds are formed. We call them churches. New intimacies and new possibilities And here in Acts 15, we are about to see our spiritual ancestors, our great cloud of witnesses, our heroes of the faith, begin to welcome the new thing of the Spirit. And it is my prayer that uh, we will find ourselves captivated by this story and realize that we are in it. The book of Acts does not end. This is our story. Now, this healing movement of being seen by the light of God and starting to see the light of God, you know, to be the light, the city on the hill... It's all—it's all there if you start reading the scriptures through this lens. Um, we see this movement has been spreading quickly. The first 14 chapters of Acts moves very quickly. I don't know if you've ever felt overwhelmed, maybe lately, that things are changing very quickly and you can't keep up. Um, it's like another thing you have to understand and accept, or, or you know, figure out what you feel. Uh, and, and so this is where we're at in the first 14 chapters of Acts. It's moving very, very quickly. They're traveling around. They're creating new communities, new ideas. Um, And here we are at chapter 15, the plot comes to a screeching halt. It's just become too much, and it's happening too quickly. The disciples are running around loving and accepting people, tearing down, dividing walls of hostility, Uh, and it's like you can just picture these like young guys who maybe don't have as many responsibilities, and they're just kind of free and going out there, and all of a sudden we hear this voice from the center A voice, a stern voice—we've all heard it uh, before—that sort of shouts, "Stop! Too much! Enough! Stop!" The scriptures, the scriptures are clear. What about the scriptures? And there's kind of pause. And so, let me show you the first few verses of Acts 15. I'm going to read you one to one to five, so it's over two slides. We have this is the beginning. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised. P.S., I just want to say right now, it is a Sunday morning, 11.30. We're going to talk about circumcision and foreskins way more than you would like, uh, but it will hopefully be beautiful and inspiring, and you'll be like, wow, who'd thunk? Okay, teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, which is the way that back then we would say, according to the inerrant scriptures, um, you cannot be saved. Like, there's got to be a line. Like, what about the slippery slope? Like, we need a line somewhere. So, excuse me very much. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the uh, others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria... Uh, They reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they came to Jerusalem, so this is the headquarters, we're at the National Assembly here, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers, who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. I know this voice, you know this voice, the scriptures are clear, no more, no more discussion. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, conversation closed. I'm going to get vulnerable for a moment and tell you a little bit about me. I did not grow up in a, a Pentecostal tradition, I grew up in a Baptist tradition, and so as a young woman, I knew I was called a pastor. I knew it, I, and I knew, I, I was zealous for scripture, I loved reading the Bible, Um, And finally, when I began leading a youth group, in my younger days, I was in a church where women could not be elders or lead pastors. The youth group was growing quickly. We were baptizing kids. We were praying and making safe space for them to tell their stories and be seen and work through their stuff. It was phenomenal. It was moving quickly. It was high energy. It was exciting. Uh, The adult congregation, on the other hand, was shrinking and struggling. There were budget issues and leadership issues and an overall fear of scarcity. So the elders called me in to give a ministry report to the elders to help them discern how the broader congregation might grow alongside the youth group. The problem, however, as they saw it, was that women could not be elders, which meant women could not attend an elders meeting. They had only remembered this rule at the last minute, so when I arrived at 6.30 p.m., they informed me of their oversight, apologized, and asked me to wait outside the boardroom until their official meeting was adjourned. So I sat outside the boardroom for two hours with my hands on my lap, and my eyes closed, praying that the Lord would open the eyes of these very manly men to the manly will of God. (laughs) And I sat there. And once they had satisfied the laws of God, they then brought me in. And I began to share my stories of what God was doing in the youth group. And friends, I did this every month for a very long time. And every once in a while, I'd inquire into the logic of it, to the injustice of it. I'd say, surely God has equipped me and called me and wouldn't be upset if my two X chromosomes were in that room with you, <laughs> dreaming and praying about the church family that I love like, as much as you do. Sorry, Nicaela, they would say. The scriptures are clear. We will not discuss this any further. End of conversation. My spirit was welcome. In that room, my gifts were welcome in that church, but not my body. It had to stay outside the room. So let me ask you, um, have you ever been on the other side of that boardroom? Have you ever been on the inside of the boardroom, having the discussion, the closed-door discussion about who, whose body is and isn't allowed to join you in there where decisions are being made? Because this moment that we've arrived at in Acts 15 is happening inside that boardroom. The religious authorities are concerned that this movement has gotten out of hand. It's too progressive, too inclusive. There is a fear that society will crumble without these laws and rules and systems we've had since the beginning of our memories. There is a fear of breaking with tradition. And there is a heavy, uh, a heavy suspicion that these young radicals are causing division. It says certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching them, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And at the end of this kind of introduction to the meeting, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered. So this is the inside the room conversation and they're talking about those folks out there trying to get in. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. If you think about it for a moment, and like I know sometimes I think we kind of, like to put ourselves in the, like, we're Paul and Peter and Barnabas, you know. But really, how would you feel? Circumcision is basically the oldest law in the Bible. It goes all the way back to the father of our faith, Abraham. Circumcision is fundamental from the dominant perspective of the folks in this chapter, and it would have been a fundamental doctrine um, for these folks all the way back. How would you feel about these young guys baptizing and fully including uncircumcised folks into the mission of God. You would pause, would you not? Would you not go back to Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and say, I'm sorry, the scriptures are clear. Genesis 15, so I don't know how well you know your Bible, but that's pretty early on in the narrative. Like, we go from, like, the Tower of Babel to Abram. Like, this is very early. This is the first person, literally the father of our faith. In Genesis 15, God appears to Abram and says, do not be afraid, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh Lord God, you have given me no offspring. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to count them, so shall your offspring be. And only two chapters later, God appears to him again and repeats the covenant, but this time there's an actual like, sign of the covenant, like a treaty is signed, you know? We have, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. Now, this is after he sired Ishmael. And uh, the Lord said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will make you exceedingly numerous. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. Now, you know the folks there in Acts 15 are like, that's us. We are the ancestors. Uh, We are the nations, you know. Um, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after throughout their generations. This is an eternal, everlasting covenant. This is my covenant, the Lord says, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins, And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Every strand of our great narrative goes back to this covenant. This will be an everlasting covenant. You will wear a sign of this covenant on your own flesh. It is this covenant that summoned God to liberate the enslaved Hebrews 400 years later. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I remember my covenant This is God's covenantal claim on his people. Think about it. Jesus was circumcised. All 12 apostles were circumcised. Jesus never spoke against it. I think of all the arguments about women in ministry, and it was like, well, Jesus never commissioned any women. Jesus is not a woman. God the Father is not a woman. Jesus, you know, so like the same logic here. (laughs) I think Jesus was circumcised. He never spoke against it, and all of the people he commissioned to ministry were circumcised. So ask yourself, are you okay with young Peter and young Paul going around baptizing uncircumcised people, telling them they're 100% in? Or would you prefer if they said, we can love the sinner, sure, but we hate the sin of uncircumcision? You cannot underestimate the severity of the conflict unfolding in Acts 15. In fact, did you know you might not have? One of my favorite things when I teach intro to the Bible at Ambrose is to get my students to read uh, First and Second Maccabees, because although Maccabees is canon in, a, in many um, Christian traditions, not in um, evangelical traditions, um, but there is a story in First and Second Maccabees about a very, very tumultuous time between the time of the Old Testament and the New, so about 150, 180 years before Jesus, where a Greek ruler named Antiochus IV had outlawed circumcision in an attempt to force Jews to assimilate to Greek culture. It's it's a, it's a, a violent kind of uh, project to save the what it, kill the Jew save the man. It's a project of forced assimilation, and Jewish people were uh, forbidden from speaking their language, dressing in their traditional clothing, eating their traditional food, singing their traditional food, and certainly observing circumcision. It was considered sort of primitive and ungodly and bad. And uh, in Antiochus's regime, if you were caught circumcising your baby boy, the consequences would be deadly and, and violent. And yet, many of the people did it anyways. They stood in resistance to forced assimilation. They risked their lives to keep their sacred traditions. They circumcised their babies. They even took back their temple. Um, this is a huge event. It's a huge story. And, and that story was in the imagination of a lot of uh, folks in the, in the time of Jesus and the early church who were thinking about rebelling and resisting against their Gentile Roman overlords. So now imagine Peter and Paul and Barnabas are baptizing uncircumcised men as if our scriptures, our traditions, and our collective trauma never existed. I'd be mad. You'd be mad. The text here in Acts 15.1 says, there was no small... I'll just get that for you. There was no, that's 15 in Genesis. Oh, now you'll remember. There was no small dissension and debate. I think it's an easy phrase to skim over, but like the church was pretty divided. This is an extreme crisis. This is polarization and division. There's anger. There's hatred. There's young people cutting ties with their parents. There's like young people blocking their uncles on Facebook. Like this is like parents are pulling children from the inheritance they're changing their names, they're switching churches, they're leaving denominations. This is no small dissension. The scriptures are clear, and yet uncircumcised people appear to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. My denomination, um, I'm I'm from a Baptist tradition, Uh, we've been in dialogue on whether or not to include LGBTQ Christians into our traditional statement on marriage for the past six years, like basically the last 20, but Six years, it's been a pretty forefront of all of our conversations and discussions. And let me tell you, it's no small dissension. Churches on both sides are leaving the denomination over it. There's real fear. There's real people waiting on the line. And at the heart of my denomination's conflict is the claim. The scriptures are clear. If we go back in history, we remember that um, So this, this debate, this tension, this room... This has been the room we've been in since the beginning. This is our tradition. Being in this room is not a distraction from mission. Being in this room, well, is our tradition. If we go back in history, we might remember that, uh, yes, evangelical denominations have had to vote on the role of women in relation to men and God. We've had to wrestle with the scriptures, which parts are most clear, and to whom are they clear? And if we recall, say, going back further, the civil rights era, We may remember that although the black church served as the center for the civil rights movement in the South, white leaders of many North American denominations vehemently denied the personhood of black people, and they debated about the role of black people in relation to white people. There were white clergy who would not perform weddings for interracial couples, and there were white parents who feared that desegregated schools went against the scriptures. So they would institute private Christian schools because the scriptures, they were told, are clear. And you have to draw a line somewhere. Before that, um, going back, I mean, like that's all like in the last 50 years. Like I think indigenous women were given the, vote to re- the right to vote in Canada in 1967. We're a pretty young democracy. If we go back even further, um, we could consider maybe the great Protestant Reformation where the Protestants for lack of a better term, um, broke from the Catholic tradition. And the Catholic tradition, (laughs) uh, uh, think about the Protestant Reformation, the majority of folks believed that the Catholic tradition honored the unbroken line from the Pope all the way back to the Apostle Peter. the, The Protestant Reformation was no small dissension. Wars were fought. Many people died. The scriptures are clear, they would say. Tradition can't be wrong, they would say. This is how we've done it for 1,600 years. Scripture and tradition cannot be wrong. And yet here we are. We've done it. We, we met in that room and we left with a bigger view of God's table. If you think about it, we come from a long line of folks who were willing to revisit our inherited readings of Scripture and tradition. If you think about it, we come from people willing to submit to the work of God's Spirit, the work that God has set before us in our time and our place. If you think about it, Questioning and doubting and deconstructing and reconstructing seems to be a pretty powerful way to honor our tradition, to observe the authority of scriptures laid out before us. Because we have Genesis 15 and 17 in our holy scriptures, and we have Acts 15, and those two texts will live in tension eternally, bound in the word of God, the living word of God. We come from a long line, of, of, of believers who allowed the Spirit to break open the social networks that uh, they had created from a place of shame and to create new kinship bonds. My friends, this is the heart of the book of Acts. What happens in this boardroom uh, will ripple out and keep rippling out to us and beyond us. Because there are clearly portions of Scripture that forbid anyone who isn't circumcised from coming near the people of God. There are some texts and stories, perhaps, that open the rule a little. Um, But generally, circumcision is consistently a big deal. It would be much easier for the church to stand once and for all and to say, God's ways are higher than our ways, and who are we to question God? You must be circumcised in order to join us, but then all are welcome. Come as you are after you've been circumcised. But you've read this chapter. You know how it ends. By the end of this chapter, they change their mind. They break radically with a deeply, a long-term, deeply held belief about how the Scripture should be read. And they do it unanimously. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. Here's where uh, my heart, like I, I'm holding back a lot of my passion, believe it or not. I don't, I don't know what you're used to, but they didn't change their mind because they quoted Scripture at each other. They didn't, it didn't work. They didn't do it. Um, I've done this my whole life, you know? It's like, well, 1 Timothy 2.11, I don't permit a woman. Yeah, but Galatians 3.28, there's no male nor female. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, and there's 19 scriptures that are aligned with me and 18 that are aligned with you. You're 18, cancel out my 18. There's one left. It's mine. I'm in. I win. Get with it. Right? That's how we do scripture. Like, yeah, well, Paul says it's a sin here four times. Yeah, but Jesus, that's not it. They don't. It doesn't work. They don't actually change each other's minds by quoting scripture. They don't count how many are pros, you know. Well, That's not it. What changes their minds is the power of story. Story. In Acts 15.3 here, it says, they reported all they had seen. Peter and Paul began to tell stories. Arguing scriptures doesn't move anyone's heart, you see. But they tell stories about real people. And I love this so much. Um, My, like, younger... uh, younger self loves this so much because I remember being a young woman in this complementarian church where sometimes people would like tell stories of my ministry or tell stories of other women's ministry and how effective we had been. Um, but the gatekeepers there would say, no, you will not tug on our heartstrings with personal anecdotes. Sola Scriptura. If it's not in the Bible, I don't want to hear it. Don't No, You're going to make my wife cry with that story. Get out of here. It's like, no, you, our hearts will not be moved. <laughs> Scripture alone. No stories. And I love it because in our scriptures, sola scriptura, is the power of story. I love it. Um, This is it. They're fighting, they're debating, they're reviewing scripture, but then they begin to share stories. And we discover it's the power of story that changes hearts. And what I love, um, the English here does a a horrible job. I'm just going to say the word report, they reported a story isn't often considered a report. And I think we get into trouble here because um, the stories that they tell are not stories that fit on an Excel spreadsheet. They're not. I think sometimes we're guilty of this. Um, if you've ever been on a mission trip and then you come home from the mission, you, you're giving a report, which is just an Excel spreadsheet. You're like, we had 43 professions of faith. 37 received the Holy Spirit. 32 were baptized and 14 registered for a discipleship course. And everyone's like, wow, that was a successful mission. We love it. No names, no human bodies, no stories, no history, nothing. Just a report about souls. That's not the story Peter and Paul are telling here. This is not a report about conversions and baptisms. These aren't numbers in a system we can file. These are stories about humans with names and bodies. And that's the crux. That's what I feel like my generation, my church right now, my people, um, we could linger on this idea of soul and body Throughout uh, throughout history, throughout Christian history. It has felt sometimes um, like we're used to treating people as if they were souls without bodies. And then we'll sometimes swing the other way and just treat them as if they're bodies without souls. So um, bear with me as I explain this. Um, Maybe some of you have gone on a missions trip before. I know I have. I remember times where I went on a mission to an exploited nation to save souls. We helped people close their eyes, accept Jesus as their Lord and personal Savior, and then we moved on. We would leave their hungry bodies their exhausted bodies, their racialized and traumatized bodies behind. And we'd absolve ourselves of this uncomfortability with, uh, well, what's 50 to 80 years of suffering in light of eternity? You're welcome. Most of us would return home from the mission to food and safety and community. You see, the good news of Jesus must touch the body. It must meet body and soul, or we cannot call it good news. Paul and Peter are not upstanding, telling a report about conversions. He's not talking about souls. They're talking about bodies. And that's the thing I think we need to wrestle with, is um, you can't make someone just stand metaphorically naked under the light while you decide what to do with their body. Because it seems like Peter and Paul are like, yeah, yeah, yeah their souls are here, but guess what? So are their bodies, and their bodies have foreskins <laughs> I know I said I would say it, but I'm like, it's a a spicy word. It keeps you awake. And I'm like, oh, this is the service that's being live streamed. So I know my grandma's watching. I'm sorry. But this is the word of God, so. This happens where before we're like, yeah, we love their soul, their spirit, their passion. That's great. But what about their body? And then as we decide what about their body, we kind of have to like kick their soul out of the room and then just analyze their body as if it's a cadaver on a table. And that's the piece I think we need to wrestle with, is you can't make someone just stand metaphorically naked under a light while you decide what to do with their body. And, and here's where I'm going to get real for a moment, and I hope, this, I hope you, you hear my heart. Um, when I was growing up in a conservative church, I had to listen to endless discussions about the scriptures that were supposedly clear about women in church leadership. And I would hold my breath in these conversations and debates because my calling and my giftedness was obvious, but I had no access to the place where decisions were made. My soul needed to be free to preach and teach and join the mission. But once the gatekeepers could admit that the scriptures weren't perhaps as clear as they thought, they couldn't just put gifted women in the pulpit because what if her body follows her there? They first had to discuss the issue of our body. And I still feel it. I feel it now when I'm in in rooms where we're discussing other people's bodies. Um, They would say, yes, she might be spiritually gifted, but what about her body? And then they would whisper, and they would talk, and they would ponder, and they would ask about our menstrual cycles. They would ask about our PMS. They would wonder about our hormones. They would wonder about our tears, if we were emotionally stable. They would inquire into our fertility, and our wounds, and our relationship status. They would want to know how our husbands felt about us joining the mission. And in our commissioning service, they would put their hands on our body and pray for our fertility. That we would conceive godly children and honor our husbands as if he were Christ. It was as if our soul and our name and our stories weren't even in the room. Just a dangerous female body. They feared that if they let our body follow our soul into the pulpit, our body would cause stumbling and distraction and emotions and desire and shame. And it was very difficult for my my people to accept that my body is good and made by God and that the gospel has met me in my body and my soul. It was difficult for some to imagine a church setting where I wouldn't need to contort and shrink and fit my body into a box until it was easy to ignore. But the Holy Spirit invites us all the way in with a name and a spirit and a story and a body. It turns out God did not just call my soul to transcend the sort of flesh suit I'm trapped in. God's Spirit invited me, tears and teeth Dreams and joy, to be a living history partaking at the table where God's body is given for mine and yours, and together we become the body of God. And let me just acknowledge the obvious. I am telling the story right now of how my body had to be examined first and approved first before it could come into to the room. But I'm saying this as a white woman in Alberta, like I made it, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> And so I know that this, is odd, that this is a conversation that never ends. Um, it's not lost on me that I have siblings in Christ um, like me, and we have ancestors uh, who look like me, who have scrutinized black bodies and indigenous bodies, worried that people with bodies outside the dominant culture's constructs of beauty and purity would offend God if they didn't cut their hair or hold their tongues put down their sacred songs or their colorful clothing to stop their sacred dances and stop eating the food they eat. And and, and I come from people who believed that the people out there had to leave their different body at the door if they wanted to enter the room. They believed that the living history of our neighbors had to be severed from the pure soul before kinship could be made. And you won't believe it if you missed it before, but that's the same tension here in Acts 15. In almost every other chapter in the New Testament, almost every single one of Paul's letters is the conflict about circumcision. In Romans, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Greek there is actually both have sinned, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. It all comes down to this debate about what do we do with the body? We are wondering in this scene and we are whispering and we are speculating about what a body with a foreskin might mean for a room full of people without one it can't be in here. We're afraid of it. You you, you need to remove it and become like us or go worship somewhere else. They were afraid of the Gentile body, that it might be perverse or corrupt or otherwise problematic, that there might be desires and cravings and weird ways of being that we don't relate to. And so we were like, your soul, sure, sealed for heaven, but your body, let us, we have to decide. And so when Peter and Paul stood up before the Jerusalem council, they're telling stories about real people. They're telling these are our friends kind of stories because Peter and Paul and Barnabas had seen by the light of God the face of those outside the boardroom. They'd been empowered by the Holy Spirit to look with dignity upon their neighbors as if their neighbors also had wisdom in their bones and ancestral knowledge in their blood. As if they had stories and teachings and songs and ceremonies that all bear witness to the cry of the seraphim uh, that we meet in Isaiah 6, who sing at the altar, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with your glory. It's not that God's glory is here and we're out there spreading it around a dark world. The seraphim are singing eternally, the whole earth is already filled. Our job as Christians is not to forward the kingdom, it's to bear witness to it, to have eyes to see it. Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with your glory. The whole earth, all creatures here below, filled with your glory. Peter and Paul are not telling stories of how they successfully assimilated people. People. They're telling stories of how they witnessed the kingdom of God, and in witnessing, they too were caught up and transformed into the new thing. Paul and Peter aren't out there saying, listen, listen, listen. These poor folks out here really need us to accept them. They're having a hard time. We ought to offer them a hand up. No, that's not it. It's as if Peter and Paul are saying, I have made new friends, and they have taught me how to dance again. And they have taught me how to put my hands in the soil and garden again. They have taught me how to cry and how to be in awe. They have brought me back to the mystery of friendship and the wonder of the waking world that we all share. These are our friends. These are God's friends. He is making all things new, and we get to be a part of it. And you know the folks preserving the scriptures and the traditions were likely insisting on some kind of standard to avoid the slippery slope, which we need to do. There needs to be some kind of rules, and Paul comes out with this outrageous idea that causes a lot more work in community and intimacy and humility than we would like, where he says, what if um, we just uh, discern someone's uh, a, a calling and, like, participation in the community of God by the fruits of the Spirit? Um, that's the point of the book of Galatians. I want to riff on that, but I think uh, Pastor David is a Galatian scholar, and so you guys know. Um, we can discern the presence of God in one's life by the fruit they produce. This is my friend, and they've taught me how to love better and how to feel joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness and self-control. And uh, I didn't realize I was hungry before, but my belly is full of this delicious sweet fruit, and these are friendships I'm not willing to sever anymore. Paul and Peter had tasted the fruits of the Spirit, and the fruit is sweet, they're saying in this. These are our friends, And and I think um, I'm going to land this plane here in a moment and and we're going to pray, but we are Christians. The incarnation is at the heart of our faith. We ought to be people with a very high theology of the body. Our bodies matter. Our bodies deserve dignity and respect and safety and space for authenticity. And the incarnate God declares it so. For to us, a son has been born. God has a body. A particular body, a traumatized body. Jesus is fully God and fully human, not half and half. It's actually not our theology that God, that Jesus' soul is of God and his body is human. Jesus is fully both. Jesus' fingernails are fully divine and fully human. His digestive system and his tear ducts and his calloused hands are fully God and fully human. This is the Christ, the incarnate God, born of a virgin, crucified and risen in the flesh on the third day. Acts 15 gives me hope that stories change hearts. We are a storied people, and we ought to be a storytelling people. So look with me. I just want to show you the letter they send. That's the big conclusion of this whole meeting. They send a letter to the uncircumcised. It says, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers and sisters of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds, we have decided unanimously to choose men and send them to you, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials. This is the final word on Christian discipleship. Are you ready? That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And I just want to put this on a poster around the city saying, listen, this is the vision. Be mindful of the food you put in your bodies. Be mindful of how the bodies of the animals you eat were treated before their bodies died to feed you. And above all, you must abstain from a degrading view of the body. The pleasure and the dignity and the protection of your body cannot be attained at the expense of someone else's. Your body is sacred, and so is mine. And if we keep doing this work of learning to see what God sees and learning to love what God loves, there will be no more abuse, no more harm, no more neglect, No more shame in our bodies, no more fears, no more violence. We might actually have to melt our weapons into gardening tools if we believed the bodies mattered. When God gets God's way, all bodies are safe and connected. So food and sex are the two core concerns of Christian discipleship here. How you view your body matters. How you view other bodies matters. Continue to love your body and reconcile with your body See the light of God shining upon you and from within your body. And the community of people shaped by this vision will be a community where all people are honored and celebrated. Circumcised or not, disabled or not, racialized or marginalized, we will become new together and we will be called by a new name the body of Christ. Jesus will be at the center. And Jesus' body will meet us in our hunger and our brokenness. Jesus' body will meet us in the grave. And Jesus' body will meet us in the age to come. We are to be an embodied people. We are the body of Christ and we need one another. Every person here, body and soul, is a living history and a living memory of the God who went before us and the God who has gone ahead. And each of us bears the image of the God who is now summoning us from the future. This is the vision. This is the meeting. And I, let's pray, let's pray. Um, We pray to you, uh, Jesus, son of Mary, immortal king, slain lamb. We pray that you would bring us to the garden, naked and unashamed. We pray that you would eat with us there, for we are a hungry lot. We are deficient in kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. And so we ask that you would grow these fruits on the life story of our neighbors, that we might eat and be made whole. We ask that we might grow and produce good fruit, that our neighbors might eat and be made whole. We ask that you would grant us eyes that see the fruit of the Spirit that you would make us like trees that stand tall and drink the sunshine into their leaves and branches and trunks and all the way down to their deep roots. I pray that as we begin to see that the God who loves me is the same as the God who loves those I've not yet learned to love, that we would begin to hunger again for the great banqueting table in the valley of the shadow of death, where enemies are made friends and we dine together with you. Set our sights on you and the world you love. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.